Hello everyone and welcome to Clinical Conversations. I'm Jonathan Bargett and I'm a member of the Training and Members Committee in the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Phil Reid, who is a respiratory consultant and the clinical lead at the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh. He has a specialist uh, role in lung cancer management and today we're going to be talking about lung cancer and assessing the patient that comes into the acute medical admissions unit. Welcome, Dr. Reid. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks for having me here today. So let's just uh, crack on and, and ask, why are we talking about lung cancer today? Well, I, I think that's probably one of the more uh, straightforward questions because lung cancer is the second commonest cancer in Scotland behind non-melanoma skin cancers. And we have about 5,000 cases a year. Alongside it being very common, it's one of the cancers that's associated with the worst statistics. So that means it's the biggest cancer killer. It's five-year survival is around 10%. So if you compare that to something like breast, which may be in the 90s. So uh, yeah, it's a big deal and it's a, it's a big problem. And why lung cancer in, M in AMU? And that's because that's also really common. I would say that we could normally expect a third of our cases to come through the acute medical receiving unit. I'm not sure if other cancers have anywhere near that type of uh, percentage. And with COVID, what we've seen is, is that increase, which is perhaps expected. You know, our internal audit of the Western General, looking at how lung cancer has presented this year, we've had 44% now of our lung cancer presentations come through, uh, you know, acute medical presentations through the front door. 36% have come through alternative specialties and only, only a quarter through GP referral. And, and those sorts of divisions are much higher than any other cancer. So that's really quite staggering statistics, Dr. Reid. And I guess the question I wanted to ask you is, do we know why that's happening? Why are these patients coming in through AMU in particular with new presentations of lung cancer? Well, as you say, it's, it's always happened. So people could look at COVID and look at delays accessing healthcare due to either whether it be the stigma of cough or whether it be putting their symptoms down to COVID or now it's a lot of people come and say, I thought it was just the side effects of the vaccine. But, you know, it would be false just to put this down as a COVID problem. You know, I said it's usually a third. It happens because lung cancer is different from other cancers in that your lungs are huge organs. And so you can have a lung cancer grow and sometimes grow to a significant size before it causes symptoms, whether it's you know, a compressive symptom uh, whether it's a, a metastatic symptom, uh, that's just the nature of lung cancer that we get a lot of late presentations. So when those late presentations are, are metastatic, it, it's quite common for it to come through the through the front door. Changing it is, is the biggest challenge. And, and obviously there's a lot of education now about what lung cancer symptoms look like or, uh, and, and, and how to differentiate them from COVID. And, and there's another diagnosing cancer early advert that's out just now that's just been released in the last few weeks to follow on from uh, Sir Alex Ferguson's a few years ago. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge problem for lung cancer. And so this podcast is really aimed at our general internal medicine trainees, our internal medicine trainees, and other medical specialty doctors. I know that our listeners would have gone through medical school, of course, but just, Dr. Reed, could you recap just what kind of lung cancers are there? And, and does that influence how our patients are presenting through AMU. You, you mentioned that there are different symptoms and, and 
possibly that might impact on what stage their disease process they might present at. In terms of the type of lung cancer, I'm not sure of the, the differences between uh, one type of lung cancer presenting more than uh, others through the front door. I mean, if you think of the two main groups, we have small cell lung cancer and non-small cell lung cancer. That's the kind of division that everyone would be very uh, familiar with. I don't know how long, maybe 20 years ago that was sufficient. And uh, now in today's lung cancer world, we know that pathology is, is more important than, than ever. So if you look at small cell lung cancer, which is probably about 15% of lung cancers, the, the characteristics of that is that it's a very aggressive cancer. Uh, it can come on extremely quickly. Uh, and therefore that is a common presentation to hospital due to the onset of, of symptoms coming on over, over weeks and often presenting at an advanced stage. Uh, the other, uh, the major group of lung cancers is non-small cell lung cancer. Within that, there's there's lots of different types, although the two uh, common groups in that are adenocarcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. Now, there are certain characteristics of, of each cancers, but it's, it's also very difficult to predict, and it's not something that we ever do predict or guess tissue type based on presentations and, uh, and, and, and history um, and CT scans. Squamous cell, for example, can often be a sort of larger, slower growing mass. Then you have adenocarcinoma, which can really be anything. There's a huge range uh, in this adenocarcinoma spectrum. You know, I diagnose people with lung cancer with adenocarcinoma that are slow growing lesions over years sometimes. Uh, and that's a common thing we see now the more CT scans we do. But similarly, adenocarcinoma can be uh, anything, really any type of presentation. So there's the three main groups of, of lung cancers. And when we talk about kind of treatments, we can talk a bit more about the pathology of it in more detail. I think you mentioned um, symptoms really that patients could present with. Be obviously, you know, cough and weight loss, blood in the sputum or hemoptysis. Could you talk a bit more about the local and systemic metastatic and, and possibly paraneoplastic symptoms that patients might come in through the front door with? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the symptoms depends on the, the presentation and, and, and the stage. So obviously, all patients can have respiratory symptoms, and that may or may not indicate localised disease. It certainly indicates localised effect. So, uh, you know, cough, hemoptysis uh, would always indicate that the, the disease is in around the airways. The more systemic symptoms are, are always more of a concern because you're now looking at a more likely to have an advanced presentation when you're when you're looking at things like weight loss, anorexia, and severe fatigue. You can have compressive effects from the tumor, so chest wall pain, superior vena cava obstruction, which is well known about and well recognized. They're the common ones. And the paraneoplastic uh, is something that everyone gets a bit more excited about, but is still pretty rare. And I, I get more referrals from people asking, is this paraneoplastic secondary to lung cancer? And it's not, then referrals where it is. And, and of that, the commonest would be hypercalcemia and uh, you know hyponatremia related to SIADH. One of the most interesting cases I've ever had in lung cancer was one of the paraneoplastic uh, syndromes in um, limbic encephalitis. And then we had two patients presenting at roughly the same time with the same condition. And these paraneoplastic 
uh, syndromes such as that are, are associated with a really poor prognosis. So this was someone that was in an intensive care with status lepticus and it was unclear why they were in that. And we noted that the chest x-ray showed an abnormal hilum and they went on to have investigations whilst intubated, suspecting this was small cell lung cancer and limbic encephalitis as a, as a complication. And, and that was proven by EBUS whilst intubated and the patient went on to have chemotherapy whilst intubated whilst in status as it was the only potential way to reverse it. But yeah, the perineoplastic syndromes in the smaller print are, are not common they come across. So it seems like obviously these patients, the patients that we're seeing in AMU present with lung cancer, they can present in any kind of fashion. And I, I know that we're not really able to appreciate the radiology on this podcast today, junior doctors working in AMU, what would you advise them on looking out for and suspecting red flags and having the differential of a lung cancer in a patient that presents in AMU? What would your, your key tips for them be? It's, it, it, you know, it's, it's far more difficult for GPs than it is for us in uh, uh, the hospital setting. You know, we have all these investigations at our fingertips and, uh, and always have a low trigger for CT scanning. Uh, so it's far more difficult for our, for our GP colleagues when they're trying to figure out when to get really concerned about lung cancer or not. I mean, every patient that will come into hospital will almost certainly have had a chest x-ray. That's effective at picking up abnormalities due to lung cancer diagnosis in about 90% of people. And there's probably about 10% of our lung cancer patients have a, have a normal chest x-ray. And that's the sort of group that always cause a bit of concern. Most of the time, these normal chest x-rays and lung cancer are more incidental findings, earlier stage tumours, and, and, and often picked up it's incidentally by you know, a CT scan performed for another reason, a CT colon, a CT KUB, a CTPA. If you're concerned about lung cancer in a patient in AMU, you, you've got two groups. You've got a group that has a normal chest x-ray and you're left thinking, I'm still concerned about lung cancer here. Or you have a group that you're concerned about lung cancer, but they've got very abnormal chest x-ray or chest x-ray suggestive of lung cancer. And, and, and that's more straightforward because you're going to go down the route of getting a CT chest abdo contrast or staging. So when to be concerned about lung cancer with a normal chest x-ray, the most sensitive symptom for that in picking up lung cancer with a normal chest x-ray is, is usually hemoptysis. I'm often far more reassured, reassured when it's a presentation such as weight loss or breathlessness with a normal chest x-ray because it's quite unusual to be breathless from lung cancer with a normal chest x-ray. It's quite unusual to be to have weight loss from lung cancer with a normal chest x-ray and usually there are alternative explanations for that and usually we're looking more at chronic lung disease in that setting. So hemoptysis is is a symptom that if present in normal chest x-ray I would be still pursuing a CT scan to make sure there's not a a central tumour there that is is hidden within the mediastinum. I think that's really useful for us at the front door in ANU to know and get an insight into the symptoms that you would be more concerned about. I think you mentioned that it's much more difficult for our GP colleagues. I was just wondering if you could just discuss about what the pathway for GPs to refer patients in. We know that there's a virtual clinic in, in Lothian. Can you talk a bit more about that, Dr. Reid? Yeah, so we, I mean, we've got uh, a, a few systems on the go. We have our uh, radiologists who will email us every abnormal chest x-ray uh, so that we can then speed along the GP to say, look, this x-ray has been flagged us. Let's, let's investigate this patient urgently. It uh, allows us to triage our, our clinic where we have sort of fast track uh, one-stop CTs attached to the clinic. 
and they'll be referred up, they'll get a CT scan on the same day, they'll get lung function on the same day, they will have a diagnostic test depending on what the CT scan then shows. Some of these patients will get a tissue diagnosis on the same day, you know, if there's a lymph node, if there's a subcutaneous lesion, if there's pleural, they can have a bronchoscopy or nebus within 48 hours and then sometimes some of the things that are slightly with our control can can be a wait of a week to two such as CT carried biopsies. There's also a huge group of patients who don't have lung cancer that are going to be referred to us and uh, we also take them on as well, you know, whether it be an abnormal chest x-ray that has an alternative explanation, that patient still needs worked up, they still need that reassurance uh, and, we, and we'll treat them the same. And then there's another huge group where GPs are concerned about lung cancer for whatever range of symptoms and we would then see them more in a virtual clinic, you know, a direct-to-test pathway where we'll facilitate an urgent CT scan and, and you know, provide reassurance that their symptoms are, are not related to lung cancer and hopefully try and find out the cause of those symptoms in addition. That's a huge volume of our work as well. That sounds like a really busy service, but a, a really comprehensive one. I was wondering if we could just talk about maybe a bit more about prevention, because we, we did touch on how we could prevent our patients coming in with these these presentations. What are your thoughts on on the public health aspect of, of smoking and other general measures with regards to our advice to patients about being aware of lung cancer symptoms, Dr. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we expect changes in smoking behaviour to have a huge impact on this in the years and decades ahead of us. In, in terms of how do things change, uh, so things can change to a certain degree with you know increased information to the general public about lung cancer and the symptoms to look out for. But a, a symptomatic lung cancer presentation does not mean you're picking up early. Avoiding a hospital presentation with symptoms that go to the GP does not mean you're picking it up early. And the only way that we will really make an impact on improving the statistics that we opened up with there about the number of people that come to hospital, the five-year survivals, etc., is going to be through lung cancer screening because it's unrealistic to expect us to diagnose early lung cancer based on symptomatic presentations. As I said, the lungs are huge organs. Things can grow to some size. And, and that's even worse for the people who are who don't have the chronic lung disease, who are, who are younger and fitter and can tolerate growth or tolerate symptoms uh, often to, to a higher level before they present. So I think the future of improving lung cancer lies in lung cancer screening. I think that's probably a, a talk for another day because that sounds like it's you know quite a lot of content to get through in addition to what we've already talked about Dr Reid would that be fair to I say? I agree with that. But you did mention about fitness and comorbidities and I guess that leads me into the next question about when we do diagnose patients with their lung cancer be it what stage they present at what information do you want to know as the lung cancer specialist and I'm, I'm guessing leading about performance status and if, if you could just sort of touch on that for our listeners. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if, if let's say I'm receiving a call or an email about a patient, what are the important things? The important things are, first of all, is, is how are they affected? So uh, from the patient factors, you want to know the symptoms that they have from this lung cancer. You need to know about their fitness, and the fitness is related to both fitness for further investigations, which is, you know, which is, which is one component of it, and without that fitness, then you don't have fitness really for the second component, which is, is fitness for treatment. If I'm receiving a 
referral, I want to know about the patient's functional status in some detail. You know, are they functionally independent at home? Do they manage their ADLs without difficulty? Or are they someone who's out playing golf three times a week? Or are they someone who is bedbound at home from other comorbidities? So the background fitness is hugely important. The other thing that's important is, is comorbidities. There are some comorbidities that may preclude investigations, such as having severe lung disease. You know, that's the commonest thing that we would see, which should be severe COPD, meaning that we can't perform the bronchoscopy or the uh, CT guided biopsy to diagnose the patient. Uh, and, and there are also some comorbidities that just do not go well with having lung cancer and lung cancer treatments. And, and that's things like pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, pulmonary fibrosis is a, a real barrier to oncology treatments in, in many instances, such as radiotherapy or some of the systemic anti-cancer therapies in addition. And it's the same with you know, severe vascular disease. So a comprehensive history, both of patients' function and comorbidities, very important. So you, you've really nicely led into what I was going to ask next, and that was about our liaison with our oncology colleagues. And I guess one of the things that the oncology colleagues will want to know is what kind of cancer it is, and um, that will guide their therapy. And I know there are new therapies such as immunotherapy, but what we haven't really talked about is personal choice from the patient. I was wondering if you could comment a bit about how we're informing our patients about investigations, you know, such as bronchoscopy and and how that leads into the implications of that, so referral on to our oncology colleagues. So I think the, the changes we've seen in terms of investigations in, in lung cancer now is that with these new therapies that are available, we are looking to try and achieve a tissue diagnosis in more patients than perhaps we would have 10 years ago. We are looking to pursue tissue diagnosis in perhaps patients that maybe weren't as fit as before, Particularly in patients who may fit the criteria for, for some of our kind of targeted therapies, you know, younger patients uh, with limited or no smoking history. So, so who we look to try to achieve a tissue diagnosis on now has, has maybe changed due to some of these treatment options that are available now. Now, we're not there yet and we're not as successful as we want to be in terms of tissue diagnosis in, in lung cancer patients because we know that we still don't achieve a tissue diagnosis in a large volume of patients, mainly due to fitness. And we also achieve a tissue diagnosis in patients who then don't go on to have treatment and uh, either choose not to have treatment when they hear the treatment options or their fitness declines uh, you know, during the course of, of investigation. So that's, that's an unfortunately um, not uncommon process. So usually when patients have a, either have a CT or get the CT scan on the day of clinic, they are seen and they are assessed in terms of lung function and clotting disorders, et cetera, to assess for fitness for these tests. And it's important to talk through patients what the side effects are or, or the complications rather than side effects are of, of these interventions. Most of the tests we do are very safe and, and the vast majority of patients go through these tests and, and, and sail through these tests, no problems whatsoever particularly our, our bronchoscopy and our, our EBUS tests, they're, they're very safe tests indeed. They never fill patients with much enthusiasm for them, but we tend to get them through. Now, patients will be talked through the test, why we're doing it, what it entails, we give them a patient information sheet, but usually they'll be booked in for the same day so that they are 
you know, not booked in for the same day, booked, they're given an appointment for the same days, and then they have a few, a bit of time to read the patient information sheets with their families in their own home and decide whether they're happy to go forward with the tests. So bronchoscopic tests are common, and CT gyribopsies are also a very common way to tissue diagnosis. But as I say, we also have many ways of achieving a tissue diagnosis, much more straightforward than that, and, and often the same day, whether it's pleural aspiration, lymph node FNA, peripheral core biopsies. Um, we've really tried to move on ourselves as respiratory doctors to how many of these tests and procedures we can we can perform ourselves. So I guess that really leads me nicely into my next question, Dr. Reid. And I, I wanted to just go back to how we would approach a patient coming into the AMU that we've kind of alluded to already. You mentioned that a patient might come in with symptoms of uh, superior vena caval obstruction. I, I was just wondering if you could talk about what that, that is, uh, just so we're all singing from the same hymn sheet, so to speak, and how you would advise on that in that situation and how we treat that, because obviously it's a, it's a medical emergency. Yeah, I, th- I think there's two forms of superior vena cava obstruction that I see it. So th- there's a kind of clinical one, which is the one that requires more urgent action. So that's where a, a tumour has grown in the region of the superior vena cava, whether it be the primary tumour, whether it be nodal metastases, and it has caused compression to the point where patients are symptomatic, you know, of upper limb, facial edema, dilated veins, failure of the peripheral veins to empty on raising your arms. And I think most people kind of remember uh, SVCO quite well from uh, medical school. So there's, there's acute presentation and that occurs when the tumour has grown rapidly. And we see that in two common types of cancer. And, and the commonest one we see in lung is, is small cell lung cancer. The other form is more a radiological diagnosis. So sometimes we'll get calls saying this patient's got SVCO and it means that there's a tumour grown and it's pressed on the superior vena cava. But it's done so in a slower fashion and that allows collaterals to form. So the patient doesn't have the symptomatic presentation of SVCO because of these collaterals. And obviously you can see that in any type of cancer, any type of lung cancer, because it just depends on the, the growth near the SVC. So there's two main forms there. So if we talk about the form that presumably you mean where there's a clinical presentation, what do we do about that? So there's lots of things that people do and people give steroids. It's not huge evidence behind it, but it kind of treats any uh, dermatous changes from rapidly growing tumours. And it's a, a reasonable step if there is no contraindications. Sometimes people ask about low molecular weight heparin. That is particularly relevant. I think if, if there's been an acute change, so we've had patients before who've had SVCO but no clinical features, and then the next morning you see them on the ward round and they've got clinical features. And that can sometimes happen because an acute thrombus has developed over the site of that uh, obstruction. And that would be a very clear indication for molecular weight heparin. But obviously the main thing is discussion with your interventional radiology team about a superior vena cava stent. And the beauty of that stent is providing immediate relief of those symptoms. And it's, it's obviously up to the interventional radiology team to review the scans and advise on the technical factors of, of how doable it is. And it is up to us as physicians to make sure it's the appropriate move for the patient. You know, if it means hospital transfer, etc. And is it right in the timelines of the patient? Because it's not something you would necessarily do in someone in the final stages of life, etc. But they're all around the relief of the symptoms from SVCO. 
what is still incredibly important is that you are able to achieve a tissue diagnosis so that patient can have these short-term interventions to allow more meaningful treatment directed towards the cancer. So Dr. Reid, we've talked about the patient that presents with SVCO. I was just wondering if you could, our listeners know about what other kind of presentations you see coming through AMU in a case of a new cancer diagnosis. So I think we have a couple of groups there. Obviously, when we talk about AMU, we could also talk about our ambulatory care pathways and our uh, same-day emergency care, et cetera. That's often the, the best group, you know, the patients that are getting CT scans maybe for an alternative reason or a CTPA and they pick up an incidental uh, asymptomatic lung lesion. So some of our stage ones and stage two cancers come through that way. The vast majority of our acute presentations to hospital, though unfortunately, are more of advanced disease. So the presentations can be compressive, such as the SVCO we spoke about, or chest wall pain, but the vast majority are, are metastatic presentations. So the commonest thing we see is probably metastatic pleural disease, so patients presenting with pleural effusion. And, and those symptoms can come on fairly quickly over a period of a, of a few weeks. And that really depends on how well patients tolerate effusion based on underlying lung disease or, or lack of. Now, it's really important in this group that we refer early to respiratory as most of our interventions, diagnostic and therapeutic, are ambulatory now. And so to avoid unnecessary hospital admissions and early referral to respiratory for this, we have large volume aspirations that we can perform, tunnel pleural catheters when diagnosis is established. So that should always be guided by the respiratory team. A good reference for malignant pleural fusions is my pleural fusion journey. And I always point patients towards this when we're discussing the more definitive management of how to manage malignant pleural fusions. But it's really great for anyone to go and look at all these different options that exist the other um, metastatic presentations that are common are unfortunately brain mets. Now they can present stroke-like, but usually there's a, a longer history than the acute onset. But that's unfortunately a common presentation. And when that's the case, you've got to make sure we do proper workup for that rather than refer immediately to neurology as the commonest reason is that this is spread from elsewhere. Outside of other metastatic presentations, then the two other things we commonly see are the presentations where could be pneumonic, could, is, it, is it lung cancer, and, and they're more difficult. And again, you're looking for things like markers of infection, symptoms of infection to help differentiate an abnormal chest X-ray from infection or cancer, and, and really the length of history as well. So it can be sometimes very difficult to differentiate that. And when we're going down the road of infection, always advise that we are checking a chest X-ray within that four to six week, and then we've got robust pathways in place for making sure those chest X-rays are followed up. And the commonest presentation probably is, is unfortunately just the general decline. We see that very commonly in the last 18 months where patients are just coming in, just generally failing and losing weight and not eating. And that is unfortunately something we see in, in advanced lung cancer. I guess what you've talked about really complements the episode that we did on pleural effusion with Professor Raman. It fits quite nicely into the pathway and how patients might present. And I guess one of the things that I know that you're involved in, Dr. Reed, is mesothelioma. I was wondering if you could share your feelings on your experiences with uh, managing patients who present with uh, mesothelioma or asbestosis-related lung problems. 
It's it's been one of the the, the great developments in uh, Scotland over the last few years, uh, originating from Glasgow. You know, Glasgow always had a the centre of most mesothelioma cases and had a very uh, bespoke service for mesothelioma patients. Whereas the rest of us probably had mesothelioma services tagged on to lung cancer services, you know, seen by lung cancer physicians, lung cancer nurses, and tagged on to lung cancer MDTs. But now we have the Scottish mesothelioma network, which is kind of a hub and spoke model where Glasgow remains the hub and we have uh, mesothelioma specialists and specialist nurses in areas in Scotland, such as Dundee, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Inverness. And when we all feed into the weekly mesothelioma MDT, so it ensures there's equitable access to um, standards of care for mesothelioma patients, whether it be mesothelioma specialist nurses, whether it be clinical trials, whether it be medical thoracoscopy or tunnel pleural catheters, just ensures that we're all providing the same level of care. So mesothelioma is a terrible condition, a condition that is terrible for a number of ways and it doesn't tend to present at an early stage either. It's terrible as its risk factor is caused by exposure in the workplace. Some 30, 40 years previous uh, is often the latent time between exposure and causing disease. So it's difficult to stomach for patients on, on, on more than one front. But patients typically present breathless, and that can be either pleural effusion or it can be due to progressive pleural thickening, acting like a, a shell around the lung. Patients can present with chest pain due to solid pleural disease invading chest wall and ribs, alongside the other common symptoms that any cancer can present with, such as change in appetite or loss of weight. So uh, consider mesothelioma whenever you've got a abnormal chest x-ray such as a fusion, there is chest wall pain or a history of asbestos exposure or clear evidence of asbestos exposure such as total plaques. One of the other difficulties we have in mesothelioma is that it can be very difficult to diagnose, particularly the, the earlier and fewer changes you have on the CT scan. Pleural fluid cytology and small tissue samples are, are rarely diagnostic. And patients can often require more invasive tests such as VATS or medical thoracoscopy to gain the diagnosis. That's a really helpful insight into the process of malignant pleural effusion and mesothelioma, Dr. Reid. I know that we've not really touched on the specific oncology treatment yet. And I was just wondering if you could comment on, on your, your thoughts on how lung cancer treatment has changed over the years and where you think it's going and where you see it in the next sort of five, ten years. There has undoubtedly been advances in how lung cancer has been treated. Those advances are in stage four lung cancer, so they're in the palliative options really where uh, things have advanced. But given you know, 40% of your patients can be diagnosed in stage four, it's an important group to tackle. So I mentioned more about a wee bit about pathology, and, it, and it's never been more important. We live in a time where we provide pathologists with smaller and smaller samples, you know, the, the rise of EBUS and things like this. But it's, it's very important to make sure we're giving our pathologists enough tissue to not only come back and tell us this is small cell or non-small cell, not only come back and tell us if it's non-small cell that it's adenocarcinoma or squamous, but come back and tell us what the pdl one status is, what the EGFR status is. Now, these things are 
things that are incredibly important because they have a huge impact on treatment options and prognosis and general outcomes from patients. So we need to make sure that we are doing our patients justice by providing this information to our molecular pathology team to answer. So immunotherapy is uh, one of the newer developments in lung cancer, and it has changed many cancers, such as melanoma. And, and one of the things that we look for when we do our biopsies is what's called a PDL1 percentage. So what percentage of the cancer cells display PDL1? And the immunotherapy, what it really does is helps the body's immune system and recognize and destroy cancer cells. So this PDL1 is found in cells in normal tissues. And there's PD1, which is found on your T cells. But cancer cells can produce these and mimic normal cells and evade the body's immune system. So the, measuring the PDL1 is a, a way to understand the percentage of cancer cells that display this and predict the response to immunotherapy. There are other things that we test that are perhaps more commonly found in our patients with a, a limited smoking history. And they are EGFR mutations, which is probably the commonest mutation that people have heard of. There are also ALK and ROS mutations. And these can all, if found, be an indication for a group of medications called tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So they're the two main change in therapies and advanced lung cancers. Now, I said who we might expect to have these mutations, but it's another thing that we don't guess and we always try to test for them in patients irrespective of likelihood or risk factors or smoking states. It's really um, useful just to get an insight into how treatment's changing and how, how targeted our therapy is I'm quite keen to talk about how the the team is involved in, in our patients' care. And I was just wondering if you could touch on other members of the MDT, your multidisciplinary team, that help our patients through their, their cancer pathway, so to speak. Yeah, so you know, we obviously every patient is allocated a lung cancer nurse specialist, and that is usually at the, the point of first clinic presentation. So I would normally see any new referrals where lung cancer is likely based on their CT scan with a lung cancer nurse specialist. They would always provide their details to the patient and they will follow the patient through their journey and, and, and follow on through the oncology pathways as well. In our MDTs, which in Lothian are, are, are twice a week, we would have our radiologists, obviously, who are there to talk us through uh, CT, PET, staging, give us advice on the likelihood of lung cancers or alternatives, and uh, give us guidance on tissue diagnosis. Uh, we have our pathologists who will talk through all the important things that we have uh, already discussed. And that's the sort of the respiratory physicians, the radiologists, the pathologists are often the, and the lung cancer nurses are often the, the groups that are you know, presenting the case and the findings. And then elsewhere you have, in, in the room, you have the oncologists uh, and the surgeons and palliative care physicians who we would all then discuss what we think the right thing for this patient is. It sounds like it's more of a, a pleasure and a privilege to, to be involved in this. And I guess one of the questions I was going to ask you, Dr. Reid, was what was it that got you into this area of respiratory medicine and what your, your thoughts on it 
have been so far? Yeah, so it's 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 the things I've mentioned. I mean, working in in that team is great. You have to be able to do a bit of everything yourself. You know, I'll, I'll often look at the scans myself and try and report them myself before hearing from the the radiologist. So you, you know, I've always loved radiology. I do lung cancer and getting all these referrals and looking at all the CT scans myself is great. Working with the pathologists understanding more about oncology from the, the oncologists and, and a better understanding of palliative care as well. A great team to be part of. Why lung cancer? I mean, another thing I like is, is you know, the interventional side, so performing procedures. You know, we do loads of plural work uh, in lung cancer, bronchoscopy, EBUS, but we've progressed that ourselves as well to try and you know, introduce ultrasound-guided pleural biopsies, medical thoracoscopy, lymph nodes, and subcutaneous metastatic biopsies. So lots of ways that we can do that ourselves where things are under our control and we can advance investigations as quickly as possible. I like working under the time pressures that lung cancer brings. Uh, I like trying to get people who are probably in the worst moment of their life through these investigations as quickly as possible and coming up with the, the, the summary of investigations and, and treatment plans for them. You know, patients often feel sorry for you. They, the, the amount of times they say to you over the years, don't know how you can do this job and what shame it is for you having to tell people all this news. But I think it's a hugely important job where communication is the most important aspect of all. That's really clear that you focus on communication there, Dr. Reid. And I guess before we wrap it up, I'd like to just get your thoughts on what our, our junior colleagues in AMU and general medicine, what, what, what is your advice for them when they see patients coming in with suspected lung cancer? What are the key take-home messages you'd give them before this, um, this journey starts for our patient? The key take-home messages, I would say, are does your patient need to be in hospital? I hate seeing people admitted to hospital for investigations because a good lung cancer service should be able to do those things as an outpatient. And I always have utmost confidence that we can do that as an outpatient. If they're having to stay in for fitness reasons because they're not fit enough to be at home and come up and down for these investigations, then we have to take a step back and, and question whether those are the, all the right things to do. Always refer to your respiratory team, whether it's uh, the reg on call or whether it's direct to the, the lung cancer team. We have a direct uh, lung cancer team referral uh, for, for all uh, inpatients with suspected lung cancer to help guide these decisions because they're difficult decisions. And refer to respiratory rather than referring to the MDT. We often have a lot of people who get referred direct to our MDT coordinator. Uh, but the MTT is for patients who are at the end of the investigative cycle rather than at the, at the start of it. And um, we don't present patients at an MTT where we, we don't have a firm understanding of their symptoms, their fitness, and what their wishes are. So it always requires that review by the team before taking it to the MDT. And it's important that we understand lung cancer and the effects of lung cancer and, and how it's presenting and what frequency are stage four and what frequency are best supportive care. So even if you have a patient who the clinical team that are looking after them have determined with the family that you know the patient is not fit for investigations, then we still need to know about them uh, and put them through the MDT. That's really helpful. And it's been a real pleasure to learn more about this process, um, Dr. Reid. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we conclude our clinical conversation today? 
the only other thing I say is around, you know, inpatients in hospital. You know, palliative care is a hugely important part of lung cancer. You know, and, and I spoke about our kind of audit of how things have gone in 2021 with COVID, etc. And, you know, 37% of our patients have been best supportive care. And 75% of the patients that have been acute presentations through AMU have been best supportive care. So it's a really, really important aspect of cancer care. Um, and it used to be called best supportive care. And we tend to use the term active supportive care now. So uh, it means that we're you know, actively doing things. Now, we're working on improving discharges when they're palliative discharges into the community. Uh, so that we have some kind of palliative care discharge bundle. And it just allows us to think about the things that are important when you're discharging someone with advanced lung cancer who's for an active supportive care into the community, whether it be from you know, benefits and DS1500 forms to a conversation with the GP and the DN team so that they know about the patient, they have them on the palliative care register, do they need to involve the community palliative care team, make sure treatment escalation plans and anticipated care plans are rigid and up-to-date and ensure that the, both the patient and the family are aware of exactly what's going on. You know, it's a common conversation to have at the point of discharge, which is what I call what happens if. So have that conversation so patients know what happens if I get worse, what happens if I become suddenly breathless, what should I do? Family and patients need to, need to know that. That's really useful advice, Dr. Reid, and a reminder to us all about the importance of involving our patients in uh, shared decision-making and anticipatory care planning with the liaison with our palliative care team. And we will have an episode in the future on aspects of, of palliative care, so I'm sure our listeners will be looking forward to that. I'd like to say thank you now, and thank you for your time, Dr. Reid. No problem, uh, Johnny. Thanks for asking me. I would, I would like to conclude and say, if you have any feedback for Dr. Reid or the RCPE at TMC, then you can Twitter us, tweet us, I should say, or check out our uh, RCPE website and leave your feedback and we will endeavour to create more content that you want. Uh, once again, Dr. Reid, thank you very much. Thank you.